Amen. Okay, so we are in Exodus. We're in the second chapter of the second book of the Bible. And this has been a really fun chapter to study because it covers a very broad um, range of history. In Deuteronomy 34, 7, it, the Bible tells us that Moses, he dies at 120 years old. In Exodus chapter 3 until Deuteronomy 34, that's 40 years of his life. So Exodus chapter 2 is the first 80 years of his life. In 20 or so verses, you have 80 years of one man's life. It's this broad space of time. And we're going to get introduced to really the main protagonist, Moses in this chapter. We're going to get to see his upbringing, his life, the changes that have occurred as he's grown older. It's a very interesting and broad chapter. I'm really excited to get into it with you guys. So with that, let's read verses one and two of Exodus chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So when you are coming into Exodus, this is the second chapter of Exodus. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. There's this, the author supposes that you have all of this baggage and all this information from Genesis coming into it. It's kind of like if you went home or to a library and you pulled a novel off of a shelf and you just, a really broad one, apparently, if you went to the 52nd chapter and tried to understand what's going on with the characters, you're probably going to be a little lost because the author has written in a way to where you're supposed to have emotional ties to certain stuff. You're, he's written in a way to where you should be shocked and surprised and alarmed. He wants to evoke emotion out of you with characters. You're supposed to have learned from them and grown with them. Right now, we're jumping into the 52nd chapter of the Bible. And when we read this at the beginning, you say, well, there's a man and he got married to a woman and they had a kid right on without any of the emotional tie that you're really supposed to have. So what we're going to do as we go through Exodus is we're going to have to continuously jump back into Genesis and try to open, as Matt calls them, folders. Genesis will provide for us folders that Exodus through Deuteronomy, the rest of the book of Moses, you can fill with information. Ultimately, the entire Bible, you can go back and fill with information all these folders that Genesis provides you with. So let's go grab one, because when you read this, you should have hot on your mind. There should be a red flag from just two chapters previous. If you go to Genesis chapter 49, you see Jacob, and he's talking to his sons on his deathbed. He's supposed to be blessing them. Not everyone gets a blessing. Here's what happens. It's verse 5 through 7. This is Jacob talking to his sons. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Right? So when you read Exodus chapter 2, this is what should happen. You should go, now a man from the house of Levi. Uh-oh, that's a cursed man. That's, that's a bad deal went and took as his wife a Levite woman. He couldn't even get a wife from a good family. You have cursed man, you have cursed woman, 
And then you should definitely have on your mind the last sentence from the previous chapter. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. So you have verse 2 of chapter 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. You should have, that's bad, that's bad. Uh Uh-oh. Right from the get-go, if you were to do a literary analysis from just what's been handed to you and you had to figure out, is this going to be a comedy or a tragedy? You're leaning towards tragedy. You have bad family heritage. You have bad situation, bad circumstance. Everything points to this is really bad. Nothing good is going to be able to come from this, which I think is really easy for us to all do. It's really easy for us to look at people and go, well, nothing good can come from them. They have a bad family heritage. They have bad relationships. They do everything wrong. It almost seems like they're cursed. Everything bad that can happen to this family happens to this family. But what's awesome is our God loves to use these kind of people right here. Our God loves to use these kind of people in his story because then when people on the outside look at them, they have nothing to say other than, wow, God must have been involved. It's only by God's power. So what you were set up right here is bad, 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 I wonder what God's going to do with it. Because there's another file you should have. That's one of them. But the, I believe it should be one of the first files, if, if not the first, one of the first files that the Bible provides for you. And it's whenever God does something, he's not done until it's good. Because in Genesis chapter one, the first thing you learn about God is when God sets out to do a work, when he decides to prepare a land, cultivate an area for his creation, he will not be done with it until it's good. In fact, if you look at Genesis one, he goes, it's good, 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 very good. God is only done with something when it's good. And when you are going through these stories and you see a situation that's set out for bad, the anticipation we're supposed to have with it, the way that, um, oh my gosh, I lost his, I lost his, James, oh my goodness. The way that James so eloquently put it last week, if it's not good, God is not done. That's a file we're supposed to have prepared in our head as we go through this. In fact, it should be really fresh on your mind because in just the previous chapter, right before you jump into Exodus, you have Genesis chapter 50. And what happens is there's a boy and he gets sold into slavery. His name's Joseph by his friends, by his family. And his brothers assume that he's gone. They'll never see him again. Eventually there's a famine. They move to Egypt and they find out their brother through an act of only the Lord has ascended to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And the family moves to Egypt together. Then Jacob dies, who's their dad. And now the brothers are like, oh no, now Joseph is gonna kill us because dad's not there to protect us. And what Joseph does in an act of incredible Grace, it should be, it's surprising, this alarming act of grace and mercy. He looks at his brothers and says, no, what man meant for evil, God used for good for the saving of many lives. We're fully prepared at this point to have in our head, if it's not good, then God is not done. I wonder what God is gonna do. So that's how we, that's how we should be anticipating jumping into this story that has started off bad, bad, really bad. Verses three through five. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Okay, so any movie that you watch is one that I really like. It's the Prince of Egypt. You see this mom and she puts the baby in the basket and she like anticipates that Pharaoh's daughter is going to save her son. Like this is the plan. I know what's going to happen. And I just really am not convinced that that's what happens here. If it was common knowledge that Pharaoh's daughter was saving babies, don't you think every mom would do that? Like she would just be overwhelmed at the amount of babies coming to her house? I don't think so. But there is something really interesting in here that I just want to draw attention to real quick. This is the only setting that I can. Because when I'm at home and I try to talk to my wife about this stuff, her eyes glaze over. And you guys can't leave. So... Here's what's really interesting to me. There's a word in here, and it's basket. And in this word, it's, um, she could have no longer took and ba- made a basket made of bulrushes. That word basket is actually a borrowed word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's an Egyptian word. And I, pr- I got this slide, and it's really interesting to me. It's used 28 times in the Bible, and you can see that little blue section. That's from beginning to end of the Bible, all the times it's used. Well, 26 times it's used in Genesis, The remaining two times is right here in Exodus. Every single time that word is used, it's referring to Noah's Ark. To me, that's really interesting because in the Noah Ark narrative, you have the world with all of humanity on it is exceedingly wicked. In fact, the Bible says that every, every thought that men had were evil continuously. And so God chooses a family to start over with. He puts them in the ark and we know God has a plan. God's gonna start over with this family. In this instance, you have a very wicked king has decided every innocent child is going to be drowned in the water. And God ends up putting the person he's going to enact a plan with in an ark. And I I really don't believe that this is just some cavalier reusing of a word. I think it's an intentional callback that there's all of these things in Genesis that's supposed to pop into your mind of God is in control. But anyway, that's the kind of stuff that gets me excited. But here's what happens. God has a plan, obviously, but I don't think that this mom has a plan. I think what you see here, this, there's a lot of time transpiring. What I think happens is you have... Pharaoh has made a decree that all these male babies are going to die. And there's so, how, how do you enforce that? You make soldiers go and check. So I think that the mom did everything that she could and she hid him for three months and doing everything that she can to keep this baby safe, protected, that the soldiers don't find out. And I think there's probably a lot of pressure from family, maybe even her own husband. They've got an older daughter they have to worry about. Maybe if they get found out, everyone's gonna be punished. It's gonna be a bad deal. She does everything that she can for three months to protect this child. And I think in the act of her putting him in a basket and putting him in in the river, I almost feel like you can't help but think that she's defeated when she does that. That she has, can you just put yourself in her place? She's a mom with her baby. And all of a sudden she, the Bible says she can hide him no longer. She's done everything that she could. I've tried everything that I can. I've prayed for this kid. I've cried for this kid. I've pleaded. I've, I've made every possible effort to save my kid. And now it's just out of my hands. And she goes to the river, places him in the basket. I think if she had any plan that anything good was going to happen, she wouldn't have left. But I think she leaves completely devastated and just brokenhearted over it. And eventually just has to go, okay, I don't know what else I can do. And maybe, maybe you've done that. I know 
that's, uh, I know eventually if you're a parent, we all have to do that, but hopefully you get 18 years of investing in your kid and trying to teach them about the Lord and, and about Jesus and how much he loves them and cares for them. But eventually we all come to a point where you have to go, okay, God, I trust you. And maybe you've done that with someone who's not your kid, where you've invited them into your house. Maybe for three months you've had them and you've, you've fed them and you've prayed for them and you've clothed them and you've cried for them. You've cried with them and you've done every possible thing. And by the time they leave your house, you go, God, where were you? God, I was praying. God, I was seeking you. God, we were seeking you. What's going to happen? At some point, I think with people, we have to do everything we can for them. She, she prepares this ark, if you will, in every way so that he'll be safe. But eventually, I think we all have to entrust people to God's care and go, okay, God, I've done everything I can. I've made every effort. I know you're in control and I'm not. I have to trust you in this. And so she leaves the baby there. I think she leaves completely dejected and brokenhearted and hopeless as she walks away. But ultimately, it's having to go, okay, God, I've done everything. If there's anything that you're going to do for this baby, I pray that you will. And then what happens is verse 6 through 9. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Okay, so what happens is Pharaoh's daughter grabs the baby out of the ark. And as you're reading this, that's a moment of dread, is it not? This is the, the, the household of the wicked king who has decided all these innocent babies should die. This is his own daughter picks up Moses. Moses is quite literally in the grip of death. And then what happens is she gets she takes pity on the child. I think that's something God put in her heart. She takes pity on him. She recognizes it's a Hebrew baby. She goes, this is one of the Hebrew kids. There's no misunderstanding. She knows this is one of the Hebrew babies. Pharaoh's Moses' uh, sister is there and says, hey, that baby's crying. Do you think maybe I should go get a nurse for you? And, and Pharaoh's daughter goes, man, that seems like a great idea. And then Moses' sister runs home and goes, mom, you won't believe what happened. I think, think Moses' mom is probably in tears. This is the worst day she's ever had. And Moses' sister goes, Pharaoh's daughter has Moses. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good at all. But she goes, no, mom, you have to come and see. And when they go back, Pharaoh's daughter says, hey, will you nurse this baby for me? I know I, know I can't expect you to do it for free. I'll pay you for it. How confused is Pharaoh's mom or Moses' mom? Like, this is the strangest day ever, right? And then so here's what happens. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this says when the child grew older, it's a little ambiguous, but what most scholars say is he's old enough, probably about three or four to have Hebrew be his primary language. He's associating who his mom and dad are. He knows a little bit of his heritage. He's in the culture of the Hebrews. Three or four might be generous, but that's, because I'm a dad and I had a daughter first and I know boys and girls are very different. So like for my daughter, when, right before she turned two, my wife was pregnant with my son, Elon. And I remember this was our conversation. I said, hey, babe, 
babies go potty in their diaper and you're a big girl, so you should go in the big girl potty. And my daughter, she reasoned through it and she goes, yeah, that makes sense. And then that was her potty training, I swear to you. That's all it was. I swear, there was, there was some accidents, but not what you'd expect. It was really good. And then same when we moved her out of a crib, we said, okay, the baby's almost here. So you need to move out of this baby's crib because that's where the baby will go. And you're going to sleep in a big girl bed. She goes, well, I'm a big girl. And I go, yeah, so you have a big girl bed now. And she goes, okay. She reasoned through it. She rationalized. She's a two-year-old and she just moved on and that's good. My son is two. Yes. And my son, he understands trucks trains and destruction and that's it there's no reasoning there's no rationalization there's only trucks trains and destruction so maybe three or four is generous what we need to know is that Moses got to stay with his parents for the early part of his life he got to associate himself as a Hebrew get some of the culture and here's what is so ironic and amazing about this early part of Exodus you have a king who has made a decree he said I don't want these people to leave So I'm going to oppress them. I'm going to make their life hard. And they're going to have to throw their babies into the water because I only want females left. That way they'll have to assimilate into Egyptian culture and we won't have to worry about their people running off anymore. We'll have full assimilation. And what happens is, is because of the decrees he made, the wicked things he was doing, he actually brought about the perfect liberator to pull God's people out of Egypt. You have Moses being raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. He's going to be educated by Pharaoh's own dime in the best of the education and schooling that Egypt can afford. He'll be raised as a prince. He'll be raised with all of the the military training that a general would be expected to have. He'll be trained to be an administrator, a a delegator, a full leader to rule a nation like Egypt. That's how he ends up getting trained. By Pharaoh's own wicked plans, he actually brings about the very thing he didn't want to have happen. Isn't that this crazy irony that quite literally is God using the evil that man intends, using his own force of it and turning it for good. It's just, it's it's incredible. And so that is the first 40 years of Moses' life. You get 40 from Acts chapter 70 and... 70. Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 30, when the apostles look back on Moses' life, they break his life into 40-year chunks. That's the first 40. Now let's look at the latter 40. Verse 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And this is just a little interesting Bible study fact. When you're looking at biblical characters, the first thing that that character is recorded as saying is usually pretty definitive of who that person's going to be. So the first thing that Moses says is he goes, why do you strike your companion? He's setting a precedent for justice. Moses is going to be the guy who ends up getting the law from God. And he ends up being a mediator between God and man. Right now he's trying to mediate between a man in the wrong and a man in the right. That's the first thing Moses does. And it's going to carry through. And the hysterical part is so is the attitude of the next Israelite. Here's what happens. He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's Moses' whole life story from here on out. He'll be having the Israelites going, who made you boss 
Why do we have to follow you? Did you bring us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? That's going to be his story from here on out. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Real quick, in Acts chapter 7, you have, them, you have the apostles recounting this story and they give a little bit of commentary on it. It's Acts chapter 7, verse 23. And this is what they say of this. When he was 40 years old, there's the 40, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So what the apostles are saying is Moses goes into the situation fully expecting that he's the liberator. He's looking, he associates himself as a Hebrew. He's looking at the oppressed people. They're slaves. They've not been given good opportunities. They're not leaders. They, they haven't been, they're probably not even business owners. Like they, they have been given no opportunity in that direction. And Moses is looking and goes, okay, I know there've been promises made by God to us that 400 years, the promise that God made to Abraham after 400 years, there will be a land that will be given to us as an inheritance after we've been oppressed in a foreign land. That time has to be coming close. And when I look at all of God's people, I see I'm the only one who's able to do it. So I'm going to act. I'm going to make this happen. And he goes in and he murders a guy. He acts rashly. He just goes for it. And that wasn't God's plan for him. He does that. It gets found out. He's consumed with fear and he runs away. And here's what happens. Verse 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, the wa- filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherd came And drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reol, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to his son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's what happens. Moses believes God has called him to something. God has called me to be the liberator, the defender for my people. I'm going to lead us out to God's promised land. It has to be me. He acts rashly. He misinterprets what he's supposed to do in that moment. And he believes he disqualifies himself and he leaves. And it ends in verse 21. And Moses was content. So now Moses is out in the desert. He's a shepherd. He's got this new life now. Hey, I disqualified myself. I did something wrong. Um, totally misread God's purpose for me. So that's, I'm just this now, no problem. I think we can all do that. Have there's ever been something that you're really excited about and passionate about where you feel like God has called me to this and then you act on it and maybe it wasn't God's timing or maybe you had done something. Now you feel like you're disqualified and you just go, well, I just can't serve now. Or maybe you were serving and you got real burned 
which can happen. And now you're like, well, I, I just, I can't, it hurts too much. I don't want to try again. I can't get up and start serving again. I can't get up and start doing that. There's no way I can stand in front of a room of three-year-olds and try to teach them. I felt that. Felt that here. All right? You, a lot of us can do that where we hit this kind of ceiling and we go, man, that hurt. I didn't like that. I don't like what happened. I'm, I'm just content to not do that, God. And maybe you feel like you're in a wilderness situation right now. And here's what happens with Moses. And here's what we see when we are able to stand back and look at it, that God used this real hard circumstance to prepare Moses. I think that Moses got all of the training he needed to be to be God's liberator, got all the training he needed to be to be the defender of God's people and to lead them out. But there is a key ingredient that he's missing. He's missing a key ingredient to be the leader that God has called him to be. And in Numbers, we see it. It's not something he would have got in Pharaoh's training or in Pharaoh's schools. What Numbers tells us is Moses was the most humble man in all the earth. That can't be said of any prince. There's, that's not part of their princely training. Someone of, of such privilege and of all that he had been given an opportunity, he would not have been a humble man. But it's in the desert moments that he becomes the most humble man in all the earth. That when God eventually comes to him in the next chapter and says, I'm using you, he goes, not me. You can't possibly mean me. Where 40 years earlier, he was like, it's me, I'll kill for it. Now he's like, well, I don't know if you got that right. He actually argues with God. God may be preparing in hard circumstances you right now for salvation, you for who he needs you to be in order to overcome. You might even think, well, I'm too old to serve. Dude, Moses is 80 before God fully calls him to his full purpose. That's insane. The majority of what God does with Moses happens in the last 40 years of his life after he's 80. It's, it's, a, it's a, incredible. It's amazing. And here's the thing that I think <clears throat> is really interesting about the beginning of Exodus is where is God? You have two really long chapters and aside from a few spots so far, God seems absent, doesn't he? Here's what I think the author is really trying to get at. There's a really natural tendency in people to go, where, where is God in really hard times? And, and if, what's funny is it's the same lie that the enemy has been telling all along. When, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve, what he says to them is, hey, God's holding out on you. It's the same lie he tells us every day. God's not capable. God doesn't hear you. God doesn't see you. God doesn't remember you. God doesn't actually care about what happens with you. Look at God failed you. Now you're in the wilderness because God didn't show up. That's the same lie he tells us all the time that God is holding out on us. But We, this chapter really plays, I think, on the natural sense that we all have in really hard, difficult times to go, God, where are you? And here's the brilliant way that Exodus chapter two ends. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's a really fascinating section, because can you ever really tell if someone's heard you? I've been married for seven years, and I've heard quite often, are you listening? 
I've heard that a few times. Can you ever really tell if someone's heard you? Can you ever really tell if someone has remembered you? How about if someone has seen you or if someone's known you? Can you ever really tell? All this is happening in the, the background. We can be, and I think it, it we, we can get so caught up in, well, this is so bad and this is so bad. Everything is going so wrong. Exodus chapter two happens in the span of 80 years. Happens in a lifetime. We are, have the privilege of looking back on it and seeing how God turns bad, 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 bad to good. But in the, in the moments of our life, all we see is bad, bad, bad. And we go, God, where are you? Are you absent? Are, are you here or not? And it, it, it gives me hope and it reminds me that I don't have to be afraid of not being able to get God's attention. That when I feel like I'm not being heard or I, that, man, when I feel like God is absent, we have a God who sees, he hears, he knows, he remembers. Here's what happens in Exodus chapter two. And this is the thing that I really, when I was preparing for this, the thing that I wanted, the, the principle that I think that Moses points to that I really liked was, if it's not good, then God's not done. I really liked that. And I was like, man, if people could leave with that thought, I think that's pretty brilliant. I think that's what we see in Exodus chapter two. Here's what happens though. I think in practice, that's really difficult. I think when you're in the midst of really difficult things, when you're in the midst of tragedy, if you had to come to Moses's mom on her walk home and tell her, if it's not good, God's not done, while that's true, I think it's cold comfort. And I think as we look through Exodus, we don't have the Genesis file open. We have a different file open. We just got done with 25 weeks of Luke. And I think we have a different file open. And you can't just leave here tonight with the principle that Moses gives us. And you can't leave here any night when you're going through Exodus with just the principle that he gives you. You have to leave here with the person that Moses is pointing to. Because if you leave without the person that Moses is pointing to, I think you've missed the key thing in the entire text. I mean, look at, look at this story. Who is Moses pointing to? Let's just take a step back and look at what has happened so far. You have a king who's wicked, who decrees that all male children should be killed. Yet a male child is born who grows up and liberates all the people. Who does that sound like? But then he's rejected by his own people. He's alienated himself when he kills the Egyptian. He's rejected by his own people and he goes out into the wilderness and is anointed by the spirit to lead them out. Who does that sound like? But then you got one more. Under the sentence of death and condemnation by that sentence and through it, he's raised up to be the prince and liberator of his people. And I get it. I know that I am one who likes to over-spiritualize things, but I don't think I am because we've been going through the gospel of Luke and there's a very interesting passage in Luke. It's Luke chapter nine. I swear this is the last place we're going. <laughs> Luke chapter nine. And here's what happens. You have Jesus. He goes up on the mountain and two people appear to him. You have Moses and you have Elijah and they stand before Jesus. This is Luke chapter nine, verse 30. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So I like words, like I showed. There is a word here that's very strange. And if you look through 
ev- almost every English translation, they all try to translate it about the same because in context, it makes sense. And that's departure. Your Bible might have a little footnote by departure. Mine has the little number four. If I go to number four, I see it's a Greek word. And this is quite literally all it says, Exodus. So this is what they say. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses shows up and talks to Jesus about his exodus. They're talking about Jesus's death on the cross as his exodus. What does that mean? As we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to be encountering a God who's a liberator, who's a deliverer, who loves his people, who gives opportunity after opportunity to come back to him. A God who is incredibly powerful, who's awesome to behold. But ultimately, as we see Moses in his exodus, Moses' exodus is about one people group. It's a physical liberation for one people group that happened thousands of years ago. Jesus' exodus is a liberation from sin and death for all eternity for all people. Moses is pointing to Jesus. Moses is going to liberate God's people at the risk of his life. Jesus is going to liberate God's people at the cost of his life. And so when we look at Jesus and when we look at, okay, Jesus's death on the cross is an exodus. How does God work all things for good? It's not until you see Jesus on the cross and you see the worst thing happening for everyone who's there, bad, 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 and you see God work those things for good. It's not until you see Jesus on the cross and he shouts out in a moment when God seems like he is the most distant, when God is not around, when God, it feels like God is not capable, like God is withholding his promises. It's not until Jesus shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that you can know that God is working even in the background of the hardest things, good for everybody. And that we have a God who's not disassociated from our pain, who's not distant from human suffering, who in fact very intimately is associated with human suffering. He understands what it's like to lose friends. He understands what it's like to to feel disease and pain and sickness and to have relationships explode and to be poor and homeless. We have a God who's very closely associated with all of our human suffering and it makes him approachable. And so then when we say things like, if it's not good, God's not done, we're able to approach God, we're able to approach Jesus with a hope that you can't have if you just take the principle and you leave the person. Because here's what Paul says as he closes out his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 15. I said Luke 9 was gonna be the last place. I'm a liar. God forgive me. (laughs) In Romans chapter 15, this is what, Paul says, it's our memory verse for children this month. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of this Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In tribulation, in really hard times, do you want to have hope? In tribulation, in really hard times, in real difficulty, don't you want to have joy? Don't you want to have what the Bible promises is the peace that passes understanding? The only way that you get that is through the Holy Spirit that's received when you accept Jesus. When you look at the person of Jesus on the cross and you see a God who through his kindness has gave all for you. And then that allows you and me when we face tribulation, when we face difficult things, to not rack our brain going, God, how are you gonna turn this for good? How are you gonna turn this for good? I don't understand how this could work for good. Instead, you could look at Jesus experiencing the worst thing. You could see Jesus experiencing separation and abandonment and loss and go, okay, God, if you took that 
and you made that for my good, then you're a God who's worthy to be trusted that you do actually see and you do actually hear and you do actually remember and you do actually know what I'm going through. You're not holding out on me. You're a God who can be trusted and I can believe the principle that Moses points to, which if it's not good, God is not done. You can take the principle, but do not leave here tonight without the person of Jesus as well. So Jesus, we're so thankful that we get to approach you as the God of all hope. That because of you, we're not hopeless people. That because of you, we can experience difficulty. I mean, the Bible talks about this life as a battlefield, as a war. It's not a playground and we can go into war every single day with hope that people without you as their God can't possibly have. We're able to have joy in the midst of suffering. We're able to have peace that passes understanding in the midst of tribulation and difficulty because we know you're a God who's worthy to be trusted. You're not disassociated from our pain. You understand and you see, you hear. And God, we trust and we are expectant to see the things that aren't good. You work ultimately for your glory. And that one day when we stand with you and we get to see through a glass that's clear, we will look back and go, wow, God, you did something amazing. And it's in your name we pray, amen.